0: Welcome to InvestorCom's Wealth Compliance Leader Series. In today's episode, I'm very excited to host Rob Dearman, the newest member of InvestorCom's Board of Advisors and a true pioneer in the financial advice, regulatory, and fintech communities. To give you an idea of Rob's background, he has served FINRA's CIO Advisory Board, Fintech Innovation Council, and contributed to the formation of the SEC's Reg BI rules and the Department of Labor's fiduciary regulations. And prior to his current role as the Chief Innovation Officer at DCG Insights, Rob launched the third largest independent broker-dealer network in the U.S., where he served as the Chief Information Officer and Head of Wealth Management. Hello, everyone. My name is Param Nasiri, and I'm your host for today's conversation. I'm very excited to host... Uh, my friend, Rob Deerman and the newest member of InvestorCom's Board of Advisors. Welcome, Rob. Thanks, Paran. Rob, I'm going to start the conversation with a few personal anecdotes. As a pioneer in our industry, you've worn multiple hats, many at the same time, at most. I'm curious what uh, interested you about the intersection between regulation, technology, and financial advice.
1: So I started out as an IT guy, a programmer. And I, I, it was really just an intellectual curiosity that you got to speak a different language in, in much the same way that you use a guitar to speak a different language, which I also loved. I went to and Arts Academy and uh, the National uh, Center for, for the Arts. Um, and, and, and I'm a student of languages. And so to me, it, the intellectual curiosity of being able to solve complex problems using code was was just fascinating. And as I began to build code and, apply it to business problems, I realized something that I didn't ever anticipate I would learn, and that is, the world goes round because of bridge builders. It's not hard to throw a dart and find someone with a business problem, but business problem owners rarely have all of the ingredients to solve their own problems. When you talk to them, they can tell you all about their pain. They can tell you about the symptoms of their pain. They can tell you about the unintended consequences of their pain, but they need someone to solve that problem. An attorney, an actuary, a CPA, and sometimes they need technology as the means to their business solution. And so what I learned as a a young programmer was I can operate as an IT guy who throws documents over the Chinese wall to the people who own those problems, or I can kick the wall down myself And I can learn the problem. I can experience the problem. Today, we have a name for it. It's called user centered design. But back then, it was just called a friendly IT guy. How do you tell an extroverted IT guy? He stares at your shoes when he talks. That's the the typical IT guy. I didn't want to be that kind of IT guy. And so, what I found is that my solutions got used, they got adopted. They were more relevant to the extent that I understood the business problem. And so I dedicated my life to being a bridge builder and surrounding myself with bridge builders and getting good at building bridges to business problems so that my ideas, in the beginning, they were just code. But then later, as I got into architecture, it became technical design. And then later, as I moved out of IT and into the business, it became a contributing member of standards committees where we would sometimes change the rules. We would invent new standards so that we could eliminate friction and eliminate barriers to achieving relevant business solutions. And so that naturally in financial services, that leads you into interactions with FINRA, the SEC, DOL, NAIC, NASAA, where we ask common sense questions, which is, How do we better protect investors? And how do we equip better advice? Well, sometimes we've got to start from scratch. And before we start from scratch with a new rule or a new data standard or a new technology solution, we all have to have a common understanding of the business problem. So for me, Parham, it's an application of skills that I started developing as a code monkey many years ago um, that I've just carried forward into new kinds of business problems.
0: Excellent, excellent. So you've talked about bridge building. You've talked about sort of understanding the core problems. Now, if, if Rob Dearman had a magic wand, um, it, it, you know, in the in the utmost sort of uh, best scenario, what are the one or two things that Rob you, you would sort of wave that magic wand and try to transform our industry? So
1: I think about our industry kind of from last mile back. I think about the man or woman who's providing advice to my mom, right? And I, and I start there because that's where relevance begins, is in the messy last mile. In the telecom industry, more than 80% of the costs and the problems exist in the last mile that connects to the person who has the device in their hand, right? And so if I begin there, there's this Venn diagram in my head that gets created. There is the investor experience or client experience, client management in one Venn circle. There is practice management. There is what does the advisor have to be good at in terms of core competencies in order to deliver a repeatable and consistent and efficient client experience. So there's two Venn diagrams, right? And then in our industry, there is the solutions management or investment management or portfolio management. Those are the widgets. Those are the tools in the toolbox that the, the practice needs to be adept at using in order to solve a problem, okay? So if I think about client management, practice management, investment management or portfolio management, right? That is, the, my, that is my sort of backdrop for, for the answer to my question. Number one, that's hard. That job is hard for an advice delivery person, it's also hard for a client to consume. Why? Because the products are complex, okay? And the more complicated my needs are, right? I have four daughters. I have three grandchildren. I have elderly parents. I am in the middle of the sandwich generation right now. I've got to worry not only about putting daughters through college and then paying for their weddings. I have four daughters. That's a lot of college and a lot of weddings. I'm also thinking about the school for my grandkids. I'm also thinking about long-term care for my mother-in-law and my dad and my mom, right? The solutions are really hard because the problems are really hard. And yet the products have not really been designed for the financial planning outcomes. They've been designed to meet other needs or maybe balance those needs. And, and so what I if I could wave a magic wand, First of all, I would have the, the, the product manufacturers who have the wherewithal to solve these problems, that they would flip that switch in their head and start thinking about the last mile and work backwards. Instead of talking about alpha and beta and standard deviation, and mm-hmm. instead of talking about you know factor-based investing or any other term of art that makes them sound smart, that they would begin with the financial planning outcomes that my mom is trying to achieve related to longevity risk, related to lifetime income, related to managing the inflation risk that healthcare costs represent to her, right? Managing a tax efficient way to get my kids through college or my grandkids through the school I wanna put them through, Mm -hmm. right? And so product manufacturers working more closely with the last mile to, to pivot from internal product development focus and using complicated terms of art instead having a user-centered design approach and a very approachable, very easy-to-consume, easy-to-understand, easy-to-implement way. That would be number one. Number two would be if we go back to the history of regulation, which is one of my favorite things to talk about that we do not have time to talk about today, but if we look at the history of regulation, there's been this uh, combination of states and federal regulators who have tried to solve problems within their silos. Right? In Kansas, for example, we saw the blue sky laws come out at the turn of the century, turn of the last century, right in reaction to fraud that was being perpetrated. right. And then after 1929 and when banks began to fail, we, we saw a reaction to that in 1933 and 1934, again in 1938 and then 1940, a reaction to that at the federal level, the, the creation of the SEC and the SROs that were trying to regulate the securities market, define the securities market, right? And so we began to have this tension between state regulators and federal regulators going back almost hundred years now. And then the insurance commissioners came in, in the middle of all this saying, look, we're not banks, we didn't fail. In fact, insurance companies were sources of liquidity in the early 1930s. We're our own thing, we need our own regulator, right? The Options Clearing Corp says they need their own. The Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board says they need their own. And as a result, fast forward to 2008, in the cleanup after the Great Recession, we found we haven't made much progress in harmonizing our standards. And so Dodd-Frank came out and in section 913 of Dodd-Frank, this was one of the most important outcomes of Dodd-Frank. They said, look, if you ask clients if they understand the difference between our regulatory standards. And let's just pick two of them. Let's pick the FINRA suitability standard and the SEC fiduciary standard under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. They commissioned the Rand Corporation to do a study with investors and they asked them, do you know the difference between the transaction-based suitability standard and the relationship-based fiduciary standard as represented by these two regulations. And I will save you over a hundred pages of reading. The answer to the question is the answer to my dad's favorite joke. What's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know, and I don't care. They didn't know the difference between the standards. And more importantly, they didn't care because the reason that they were building a, 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 a relationship with a fiduciary or an advice delivery agent was because they trusted them. They trusted them to have care, skill, diligence, and prudence. They trusted them to know what they claimed to know. They trusted them to build solutions that were relevant to their portfolio. And so if I could wave my magic wand a second time, I would wave it in the direction of insurance commissioners, state securities commissioners, FINRA, the SEC, the DOL, and the other SROs, and I would harmonize our standards. I'm not going to front run the answer. I'm not going to tell you the state is always better or federal is always better. But if I could have everybody focused on the same problems at the same time, and we could have a solution that works, whether I live in Michigan or California, I've got longevity problems, I've got income problems, I've got market volatility problems. And I wish, wish, wish and hope that maybe this administration might do a better job of working together across silos. But if I wave my magic wand, I would, ha- I would have them, I would force them to, and I would end up with a more investor centric set of harmonized regulations.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Thanks for your remarks on that, Rob. I think uh, I wish I had a magic wand to give you and I wish this could actually come true. Um, You know, you you talked about a little bit around the sort of the silos of the of the regulations or the regulatory bodies. Um, I want to see if we can zoom into sort of Reg B.I.'s care obligation a little bit and talk about uh, the the, the Reg B.I.'s care obligation and how it mandates uh, the financial professional to compare reasonably available alternatives in order to act in the client's best interest. How do you believe these new expectations will shape the future of our industry? Oh, well, So this
1: is all things old are new again. Mm -hmm. When we think about a study of just the fiduciary standard, going back to the Middle Ages, it's always been shaped. The contours of any fiduciary standard have been shaped by these two duties, the duty of care and the duty of loyalty, right? And regulators love to focus on the duty of loyalty historically because that's where you find low-hanging fruit for enforcement actions, that you committed fraud you were disloyal because you put your own economic interests ahead of the clients. Right. And then we argue about things like the phrase without regard to right in the duty of loyalty, but what regulation, best interest has done is, which I think is an important and positive contribution to the industry is they have shined the spotlight on the duty of care. If we go back to the the test of, of my mom, my mom wants to know, that regardless of how you're getting compensated, you're good at what she needs you to be good at. You're competent, right? And that you have done the necessary homework, AKA diligence, and that when you look at her situation, you're going to do a situation specific level of diligence to ensure that your recommended solutions are the best ones for accomplishing the outcomes that she wants and needs. And so Reg BI attempts to do that with more principles. As as we all know, the SEC has taken more of a principle-based approach than a rules-based approach that you might see with FINRA and other SROs. And the principle at work here calls for a combination of disclosures and documentation. It also calls for a series of processes in investigating things like reasonable alternatives. And so the principle here, if you talk to staff at the SEC who got to work on Reg BI and the CRS, the principle is a a fairly straightforward and commonsensical principle, which is we wanna see that you're not just pushing product. We wanna see that you're doing the appropriate diligence on the client's needs, wants, and wishes. They don't use the word financial plan but sort of underlying the CRS is a level of diligence that starts to move you in the direction of financial planning. And so we want you to investigate the entire household balance sheet for my mom so that you can lay out the constraints, the boundary conditions, and get to the heart of her need. Number one, we want you to disclose any remaining conflicts that might underlie what's coming next, which is the recommendation, And so we'd prefer that you eliminate your conflicts. And if you can't eliminate them, we want you to mitigate them. And if you can't completely eliminate or partially mitigate them, we want you to disclose and talk about them so that my mom can know where you're coming from and what, what is coming next. And then when you present what you think is the best solution We want you to explain why, how it's relevant to what you've discovered in the CRS process. And we also want you to talk about what you didn't recommend and why, okay? Mm -hmm. So we've got sort of first crack at that with Reg BI, and it expands on rules like FINRA 2111, or uh, 2330 and variable annuities, um, or a, a variety of other regulations at the state level that I could talk about even the Model Suitability Act and Reg 275 that recently came out of of the NAIC. But what it does, I think with the reasonable alternatives documentation is it it moves you in this direction of product agnosticism where it says, look, we wanna make sure that you're taking a comprehensive look. We, We don't expect that every agent, every registered rep, every investment advisory representative is going to be an expert on the tens of thousands of QSIPs that are registered in the edgar database but what we do want to make sure is that you're looking creatively at other solutions so if my mom needs income did you just put put push a living benefit on her because you want a six percent variable annuity commission did you talk to her about preferred stocks or did you talk to her about bond ladders or absolute return or total bond mutual funds? Or did you talk to her about, who knows if she's an accredited investor and maybe a little bit more sophisticated, did you talk to her about alts or cash secured puts for income? What did you talk about? Because what they wanna see from a negative perspective is that you didn't just push the same old product that you push on everybody. But from a positive perspective, they want to see a process where you're really trying to get creative in drawing on all of that due diligence that they've expected you've already engaged in to creatively build a bridge back to my mom, right? And show her why this is better than alternatives. I think that's a very positive thing. And I think what you've seen in the first couple of rounds of the SEC enforcement is that they wanna see consistency Mm -hmm. in that due diligence, in that discovery, and in that documentation. Yeah. And I think what you what you heard from their first report at the OCIE is that people are doing it; they're meeting sort of the spirit of it, but there's still opportunities for improvement in administering a process that's more consistent across all of the clients in your book.
0: Yeah. Rob, that's super helpful. I think for anybody who's uh, looking to uh, you know stay compliant uh, with respect to Reg BI's care obligation. Let me, let me sort of transition there to uh, how you see compliance technology uh, like InvestorCom's right, BI platform, shaping the future of financial advice.
1: So this kind of feels like a softball uh, based on what I just said. Yeah. Uh, and, and we didn't prepare this, actually. So I, I think it's important whenever you're trying to scale an intimate service relationship, to really carefully look at what needs to be delivered through human delivery and what should you leverage technology to deliver, right? Some people have called this the cyborg generation or the combination of robo and human advice delivery. We've used technology forever in our industry to try to scale the service because let's face it, the investor is going to win In this cycle, the investor wins. You have to be flexible, you have to be custom, you have to be personalized, which means people will not pay a premium for a product but they will pay a premium for a service, right? This is the story of the retail apocalypse. Why did Montgomery Wards and why is Sears and JCPenney and Payless Shoes, why are they going out of business? Because the Amazon shopping experience eliminates major portions of friction. And the product is a commodity. It's the service experience that I want, right? There's a lesson in that for advisors across America that you need to get good, not just at building asset allocations and picking funds. You need to be good at architecting service experiences. So what is your service experience? Does it look like the doctor's office in 1978 when I was a kid? and you go in, show up on time for your appointment, wait an hour for the nurse to call you back, hopefully the doctor sees you within an hour and a half, and then they give you what you get and you go to the pharmacist, no questions. They're the smart one, right? No, people will not tolerate that. It used to be the case that advisors didn't like doctors, lawyers and engineers as clients, why? Because they use the validator shopping model. They already knew the answer, they just needed to double check it with an advisor. Well, guess what? In the information age, everybody's a validator. Everybody acts like a doctor, a lawyer, and and an engineer. And this is a a former software engineer speaking right now. Everybody in this generation has WebMD up when they go to the pharmacist, but they also have Morningstar.com up when they're talking to an advisor. They're also going to personal capital and they're double checking, why didn't you use a Vanguard ETF? Why aren't you using ETFs at all, right? Wealthfront, Betterment, Morningstar, they have equipped and informed and empowered a, a generation of investors. And so you have to know that. You can't play keep away with knowledge. It's impossible anymore, okay? Asymmetry is not value. I know something you don't know, or I have access to something you don't have access to. The clients can go to ETrade, trade Scott Trade, TD Ameritrade, Schwab, and they can get access to every, almost everything you have access to, right? And so the value is in the service. What sort of service are you trying to architect? Service experience are you trying to architect? So in that light, you need to be really careful about how you scale that service experience. And there is no way to scale efficiently, repeatably, sustainably a service experience without technology. Technology like InvestorCom's Reg BI tool actually kills two birds. Number one, it makes the discovery and documentation scalable repeatable, and efficient, but you know what else it does? It keeps the cuffs off your hand, so to speak. It it scales your service experience while you are also remaining compliant with your broker-dealer, your RIA, CCO, and with the regulators. And I will tell you, after sitting through dozens of exams over my career, when you can show someone that you're using an industry-standard tool, best practices coming from industry-standard product masters, you can watch the regulators start checking the boxes on their sheet right. because they know that what you're delivering is consistently high quality to every client that walks in the front door.
0: So, dearman, thank you. Um, you've today you've spoken about sort of some of the some of the tools you'd employ if you had a magic wand. Uh, we've dug into sort of some industry parallels around sort of what's happening in the retail world into our industry, and also. Uh, ways of staying out of uh, taking the handcuffs off. Um, So I want to say it's always an insightful conversation and uh, hopefully we can have you back again for another episode. Thank you very much for your time, Rob. Thanks, Param. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's session, please like this video and subscribe to InvestorCon's YouTube channel for more Wealth Compliance Leaders episodes.